Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. So there is a, a trope. If you're making a movie or a TV show, uh, and you want to show that the people on this show are kind of over the top, maybe they have a lot of money, or maybe this is a part of a culture that is big and rich, the way that you do that very easily is by showing a big party. You just show a party, no matter what era it is. You want to show how crazy the Caesars were? Show them at a party. If you want to see what it's like in the medieval world to be a super rich king, Show them throwing a party. If you want to see what the Victorian era was like for the mega rich, throw a party with a string quartet. In any sort of era, that's the way that you can show excess. You can show that a people or culture are are over the top, and in film, you can do it real quick, real shorthand, just with a party. And, And the other thing that goes along with that trope is almost always the party doesn't end well. Like almost any time that there's, think about TV shows, movies, any time there's a big party, almost always ends badly. And that's true in history too. Some of the most excessive parties in history were followed by calamities. You think even about uh, the story of the fall of the Babylonian Empire, which, which we read about in Daniel 6, that fall was at a party. The kings and all of their sort of ministers were thrown a huge party, and while they were all drunk... You know, that's when the Persian Empire came in, destroyed them, and took over the world for the next couple hundred years. That's one of the reasons that we love to see parties. We love to watch them because there's something about it that we go, I'd like to do that. I mean, who doesn't love a good party? Who doesn't like a wedding? Everybody loves a wedding, right? Everybody wants to go to a wedding. It's good times, kicking back, good food, good drinks, good friends, good times. Even introverts like parties, you know? They go to a wedding, and they like it because there's a table for them to sit at to watch other people dance. You go do it. I'll stay here. I have a safe zone. If you want to come and talk to me, you can. There's comfort in spending time with our friends. There's security in know that our day is booked up with a party. We say things like, man, that party was a great way to de-stress after work. We say things like, man, that get-together was the perfect way for me to forget about all the hurt that I'm going through. It's a pleasant distraction from the feelings that we might have of being vulnerable, of the demands that are put on us by daily life. And when we're stressed or hurt, that's what our heart naturally grasps for. We grasp for comfort and security. We ache for them. We go out of our way to create them or find them. But the Christian life from start to finish, is shaped by suffering and reliance on God. When we find ourselves reaching for soothing pleasure and total security, we find ourselves at best out of line with the way of Jesus and at worst, worshiping other gods. In many ways, this was what was happening to the people in the time of Amos. They were partying to forget partying to wipe away or ignore the problems of their lives. But Amos shows up with a message from God like the cops in every teen movie with a party. 
He comes to break it up. He shows up to shut it down. And so that's what we're going to read this morning. Amos chapter 6 is Amos showing up to the party, ready to shut it down. So if you are able, I would invite you to stand. I'm going to read Amos chapter 6, and we'll have the words on the screen behind me. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath the great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence." Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idol songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. And I will deliver up the city and all that it is in, all that is in it. And if 10 men remain in one house, they shall die. When one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house, they shall say to him, who is in the innermost parts of the house? Is there anyone still with you? And he shall say, no. And he shall say, silence, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison, and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, Have we not by our own strength captured Karnaim for ourselves? For behold, I will rise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Lebo Hamath to the brook at Arabah. City Church is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. I mentioned last week how much humor is sort of sown throughout the book of Amos, and it starts up again here in chapter 6. Amos is taking on an incredibly sarcastic tone. Uh, In this chapter, he is proclaiming woe, destruction, and uh, joylessness on the people who feel secure in their cities. He calls them the first of the nations. He calls them notable men. They would be the kind of people that would show up on a list of 40 under 40. They're a pretty big deal in their own mind. The problem is, just from the outset, it's flat out not true. They are not this great people. Throughout the history of the Old Testament, as you read through it, at the peak of the nation of Israel's power, when they were united under David and Solomon, they were a minor minor regional power. They could, yeah, go out and win some battles against the Philistines, the Edomites, the Adulamites. They could win battles against those people, but they were still, at the height of their power, nothing compared to Egypt. 
nothing compared to Persia or Babylon. If it wasn't for the religious significance that came out of the Old Testament, the nation of Israel would be a footnote in most history textbooks, just like the nation of Edom. We wouldn't think about it. And yet Amos is showing them, is holding a mirror up to them to tell them that they do not, they are not who they think they are. He says, go, go look, go look at Calne, go look at Hamath and go look at Gath. Now for most of us, we read those names and goes, and we say, neat, Bible names. And we just keep going. I didn't know two of those names before this week. You're not alone. Like this is not like a piece of the Bible that like jumps out at you. But if you look through history, these are all three cities that had just been conquered by the Assyrian empire. And all three of them as cities were more significant than Samaria and Israel. And so Amos is telling them, you, you think you're important? You think you're a big deal? Look, look at the three neighbors next to you that were bigger than you. They're gone. Do you think something different is going to happen to you? Do you think that you're bigger or better? You're not. And he drives the point home in verse three. They put far away the day of disaster. We can't change time. So what is he saying? What Amos is telling them is you are blocking this out of your minds. You are closing your eyes to what is happening. You are just pretending that everything is fine. You're, you're like somebody sitting in a room that is burning down around you, drinking a cup of coffee, saying, this is fine. This is fine. Nothing is happening here. For all of their intelligence, beauty, and creativity that they had as humans, they were being willfully dumb. And that's something that we all suffer from. All of us as humans, beautifully, wonderfully created in the image of God, can be willfully dumb. I'm speaking for myself here. Uh, about eight years ago, I, I had to go to Tampa. And that would be a willfully dumb story in and of itself if I just ended it there. But I had to meet a friend of mine over at Davis Island. We were going to a new coffee shop. And we went over there, and we had coffee, and it was a lovely time. And then I started to come home. And it was about the time that the afternoon storm rolled in. And if you're not familiar with Davis Island, it's a little bit like um, uh, the neighborhoods in St. Petersburg that flood really easily. It's a little bit like Shore Acres. And so high tide and the afternoon storm both came into Davis Island at the same time. And the water on the streets got up to about three feet. Now, because I'm very smart, um, I figured out that if I tailed a Jeep as it was driving down the street, I could go through it and stay right behind it and kind of exist in its wake, and I would be fine. That was a great plan, and everything was going great until the Jeep made a sudden right turn, and that wall of water that it had been pushing out of my way came directly in and hit the front of my car. And I just kept going. I just said, this is fine for three years even though it was very strange that I really couldn't run my air conditioner if I wasn't on the interstate. It was very strange that the car's temperature would always get really hot. It was really strange that my radiator wasn't working because it had been destroyed by the water. But what did I do? I just ignored the problem. I just, just put it out of my mind. That was dumb. It was not a smart idea. 
And that was just the same thing that the people of Israel were doing. They were oppressing the poor among them. They were being violent, as we have seen again and again in Amos' prophecy. And they were thinking, well, God's not going to do anything about this. We're fine. We're God's covenant people. He would never bring calamity on us, but he's going to. He sharpens his critique of the people um, by showing them the way that they're trying to cover their problems, by the way they're trying to put this out of their minds. Instead of face the hard truths of where their money was coming from, the people of Israel were using that money to throw lavish parties. Verses four through seven describe these parties. They're, they're sitting on ivory couches. Uh, they're, they're drinking wine from bowls. There was a TV commercial a few years ago where there was some Russian oligarch who was sitting in this fine couch and he had like a miniature baby giraffe and he just sort of looks at the camera and says, opulence, I have it. That's the picture that Amos is painting here, that these people are just over the top throwing these parties. They're, they're eating the best veal and lamb chops. And they're doing it all while lying on their fancy couches and listening to their collection of vintage vinyl records. It's as vivid as any movie or show you could watch. It's the lifestyles of the rich and the famous, except Amos is saying, this is everybody except for the poor that you are using to make all of this money. They did all of this, Amos says, for the express purpose of avoiding to think about the truths of what they were bringing on the land, of the disaster that was coming because of the way that they were treating the poor. In fact, the way that Amos talks about about drinking wine from bowls and, and anointing themselves with oil shows just how far off the course that they've gotten. The language that he uses there is language that comes from Exodus and Leviticus. These were bowls of wine that should have been a part of the sacrifice. These were oils that were used in the temple, and yet here they are, lounging around, drinking out of these giant goblets on their designer couches. Now, because this picture is so over the top, because the, the idea here is Amos is so sort of over the top, it would be easy to dismiss this, to laugh at this. Uh, that's, just, that's just a lavish party that's, that's just like any TV show or any movie but our hearts would be waving away a critique that probably cuts us to the bone. Oftentimes, there's something that's, that's a strange phenomena that oftentimes churches' struggles corporately often mirror their pastors' struggles individually. And if that's true, then we probably ought to listen up because this passage cuts at some of my deepest idolatry and struggles. The people of Israel were using pleasure and joy to block out the hardships and struggles of their lives. They were numbing the pain of being human. They were numbing the pain of God's judgment by giving in to their cravings and lust. They wanted stress to be so far away from their lives that they insulated their lives with the finest things. Friends, I do this sometimes. I run from difficulty by chasing pleasure, and it's my strong guess that some of you do too. We want so badly to relax that we can make others feel hurt and neglected by our lack of action. But God is going to come crashing into the party like the cops in the teen movie. 
Like every house party that was ever broken up in the middle of a teen movie, here comes Amos. Those who use pleasure to blind their eyes to the hurt that they have caused to others are going to be the first ones who are taken away into exile. In fact, uh, Amos has a play on words here. When he says revelries, the word revelry can either be a party or a wake. And the way he uses it here, he's saying, you think you're throwing a party when in reality, what you're throwing is your own wake. The party that you're at is celebrated your anticipated death because that's how sure the judgment is coming on you. Pleasure can never cover pain. It can only delay it. It can only delay it. The people of Israel were busy exploiting others and using their wealth to numb themselves, but the check always comes due at the end of the night. The credit card had already been swiped, and no matter what, there would be no getting out of this payment. There is no dining and dashing in the kingdom of God. Their judgment was sure because of their actions. But Amos' critique isn't just for those who use pleasure to delay their problems. He also confronts the way that they would chase security. God swears by himself, which is not something God does often. God has nothing higher to to swear by, but he swears by himself. He takes a holy oath to tell them how much he hates their pride, to tell them how much the northern Israelites are going to be utterly destroyed from top to bottom, every city. Every stronghold of these people is going to be destroyed. And to illustrate that, Amos takes a break from the poetry that he's been using. And if you have uh, certain Bibles, they, they show this by the different ways that it's indented. But he wants to show and tell a story of what it's like. All of those who escape the sword of Assyria are going to die from disease. They will pile into a high house, hide in close quarters, only to die of disease once they get in there. And then when, the, when your family members show up to try to take care of the bodies, when the coroner shows up to look for the bodies to take care of them, the, they won't even utter God's name. They say, oh, shh, shh, shh. Don't, don't even talk about God. We can't talk about him. That's how utter this devastation is gonna be there. They're gonna be unwilling to utter God's name, even though he is the one that's bringing judgment on them. Uh, this is a little bit like if you've read Harry Potter um, in the seventh book in the Deathly Hallows, uh, as they're on the run, um, there are moments where they can't even say certain words because they're, I don't know, it's magic. Something would go very, very badly if they say certain words, including Voldemort's name, and so they don't say it. So they're very hushed about it. They don't even mention his name. That's, that's what's going on with the people of Israel in this text. They don't even want to mention God's name because then they might alert God to the fact that they're still alive. That's how devastating this judgment is. In the case of Israel, it was their pleasure and their security that God was breaking and breaching to the point that they couldn't even give one another proper burials. And this calamity isn't just going to come on a select few. In verse 11, Amos says that it's going to happen to the huge houses to the people who live in the good neighborhoods and the tiny houses, the people who live in the not-so-great neighborhoods. It's going to happen to every income bracket, everyone who thinks they they are secure. They just aren't. 
God doesn't care about their supposed military might. As Amos has been going around giving these prophecies, it seems like the people were applied, well, but wait a minute, Amos, if God's judgment's coming on us, if God is going to break us as a kingdom, what about these towns that we just took over? We just had a really good year militarily, and we took over these two cities. See, is God's judgment coming now? And Amos's response is, it, it's a joke that only makes sense in Hebrew, um, which is he mispronounces the name of the city that they took over. So he says, you have taken over Lodabar. And when he says Lodabar, he mispronounces it. So what he actually says is nothing. You have taken over this city that is nothing. It doesn't matter. You think you're big and bad because you, you beat up the little kid down the street, but it is meaningless. The people of Israel are so afraid of being vulnerable that they're willing to be driven and willfully blind in order to avoid that vulnerability. They will do anything they can, scratch and claw around it, because that's how trusting in ourselves for our security works. We do anything to maintain the illusion that everything is okay. We go so far as to even controlling and manipulating others just so that our security remains intact. We want so badly to be free from fear, from anxiety, that we work ourselves to the bone in order to avoid it. We spend extra hours at the office to to make the extra money we need to maintain the extra lifestyles that we want. We religiously check our 401ks to make sure our retirement is secure as it can be. Now listen, work, money, retirement, none of those are bad things, but they're terrible gods. They're terrible deities to chain yourself to. And that's what Amos is going after. Because as secure as we can try to make our lives, as secure as all those things can be, they can be gone in a moment. You can be fired, economy can tank, Everything can go away, which is exactly what Amos was warning the people of Israel about. All of the things that they had built are going to vanish in a second. God is going to use Assyria to utterly and brutally destroy their kingdom. They thought their promotions and victories were a big deal. And God's saying to them, it's nothing. It's nothing. Nothing. So, beloved, we have to leave behind chasing security, leave behind chasing pleasure. As I put it earlier, I want to put it bluntly again, the Christian life formed by the Holy Spirit and one of following Jesus consists of dependence on him and suffering after him. Jesus said that a servant is not above his master, that that what happens to the master, the servants will go through as well. And that's the story of Jesus. Jesus was somebody who was wholly dependent on his father. Jesus was somebody who who allowed pleasure to be delayed, allowed gratification to be delayed. Just think about him in the Garden of Gethsemane. After the Last Supper, before he's arrested and crucified, he's there, he's praying, Father, thy will be done. If you want this cup to pass from me, then take it, but nevertheless, I'll follow you. He was depending on his father in that very moment. He was willing to walk into, he knew what he was walking into, the incredible pain, the physical torture that he was walking through. 
Beloved City Church, we have a suffering Savior. We have a Savior who denied himself pleasure for the good of his people. A Savior who walked in dependence on his Father and trust that even when things go wrong, God would still be with him. And that's the shape of our lives. That what it, that's what it means to follow a crucified Savior. We follow him in those things. Not where we build our security through working and making a little bit more money. Not where we live our lives on an endless high of chasing one pleasure to the next. No, we're called to follow our Savior in suffering for the sake of others. We're called to be like him in our utter dependence on the Father. Now listen, this is not a do-better sermon. I can understand why you would hear that as I say this, as we look at our idolatry, as we look at the ways we chase pleasure and chase comfort. This is not a do-better sermon. This is a dream-bigger sermon. Because all of those things, the security, can be so quickly gone out of our lives. All pleasure is fleeting and is just delaying us dealing with our pain. But in Jesus, in his truth, in his beauty, in his kindness, we have something greater. We have something more. And so those those things like pleasure and security make lousy gods. And so what Jesus is calling us to is not just do better, but to see him as bigger and more beautiful than those little pleasures in our lives and a little bit of security. The security that he provides us is greater. The pleasure that we have in following him is a deeper, lasting joy that is not the sort of breath-ment of happiness that we try to chase after in this life. So let's repent of our idolatry of pleasure and security, and let's lean wholly on Jesus. He's the one who gives us our daily bread. He's the one who holds our future in its hand. And so it's my prayer that Jesus would move us all through the power of his Holy Spirit into being more and more dependent on him and more and more willing to walk into the suffering that he has called us to as his followers. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess that we are a lot like the people of Israel. We oftentimes try to numb away the pain of our lives with pleasure. We try to escape from the hard things that we're going through. Lord, we avoid hard conversations that we need to have. And Lord, we also are guilty of trusting in ourselves to build our own security trusting in ourselves to to build ways to keep control in our lives. That's what the people of Israel did, and Lord, we do it too. And yet, and yet even knowing that, you still endured the cross for us. You still died on our behalf, knowing that we would struggle with these things. And now because you have forgiven us, you are inviting us into a new life, where we see you as our security and where we find lasting joy in following you, even through suffering. So Jesus, would you form that in us? Would you change our hearts and our lives from the inside out? We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.